Hello, and welcome back to the Quavio Data Science Podcast. If this is your first time joining us, I hope you enjoy your stay. Quite often on this podcast, we discuss the things you need to do and the skills you need to have in order to be a successful data scientist. It's been implicit in quite a few episodes, and we've talked about some of the reasons it's important, but one topic we haven't fully dived into before is that to be a successful data scientist, you need to be able to write good code. Easier said than done, how exactly do you write good code? I'm welcoming back three members of the team at Clavio today who know a fair bit about how to write code. You will probably recognize their voices if you listen to past episodes. All three of them have been on the podcast before. For each of you, I'm going to ask you to give a quick introduction just to remind people. Who are you? Which part of the team do you work on? And what do you do there? Let's go ahead and start off with Zach. Zach Bentley, lead site reliability engineer at Clavio, came there via a somewhat convoluted path from working on Capitol Hill in Washington, D.C. to being a systems administrator, application developer, and now helping servers run. Clavio takes the site reliability role pretty seriously, so that means that I spend most of my day writing code not operating servers or responding to production pages, but, but building out tooling and processes that the rest of our engineering org can use to their job done as quickly as well as possible. In addition to professionally being a stakeholder in good code at Clavio, it's a topic I'm passionate about. And I've engaged a bunch here and at previous jobs with engineering best practices, sort of how to culturally not be a jerk during your first code review on either side of it and, and how to quickly arrive at something that others can maintain, operate, and runs well when you ship it to production. Very nice. Next up, Alex. Hi, I'm Alex Rina. I'm a machine learning engineer in the product recommendation space of Clavio. So I work on everything from machine learning models to the data layers that connect our front end to those models, all the way to the front end sometimes. I've been at Clavio for a while now. I think I'm approaching my third year now. Yeah, it must be since I'm coming up on that in about six months. And or wow, it's March in about three months. <laughs> <laughs> so what is my claim to good code? I guess I'm really into linters. I like to experiment with language functionality. And I'm quick to offer a suggestion and slow to offer blocking requirements. So you'll see me on your pull requests. Awesome. And Maritza, last but not least. Hi, I'm Maritza Ebling, and I'm a lead machine learning engineer here on the ecosystem intelligence team. We're responsible for building out benchmarks within Clavio to help our customers know how they compare to other similar customers. I've been at Clavio for about three years. And before that, I worked at other startups in natural language processing, as well as in pharmaceutical space. I think my passion for good code has to do with using similar vocabulary as you use outside of coding so that designers, product managers are all speaking the same language. So a clear variable name that reflects the business use case you're trying to solve for. Awesome. I think the introductions probably made this clear, but one thing I just want to stress before we move on, we have three people who've been at Clavio for a while. We have three people who are very senior engineers at this point. There's a lot of expertise on display in this episode. So if you're listening to it, please take what they say very seriously because they know what they're talking about. With that, let's get into it. I'd like to start by defining our terms. What do you consider good code? Yeah, for me, this was a challenge to start out with. Good code is something that I feel like I have an eye for and maybe an eye for bad code, but trying to put something down on paper was difficult. So I came up with a bunch of attributes of good code that I think 
maybe more indicate in the opposite direction what bad code is. So bad codes not easily read, bad codes not easily modified, it requires a lot of maintenance, it has extraneous complexity and bad abstraction layers. And I think that on the flip side, good code generally should have good readability, good performance, good abstraction layers. But then I really felt like I was tying myself in a knot where you can definitely turn performance up a little bit and turn readability down a little bit. And maybe that's good code in one context, or maybe the site only gets 10 requests a day and tuning up the performance all the way so that you can't read it anymore is not worth it. So I think that there's like context dependent good code. I was curious to hear Zach and Ritsa's opinions on what good code is and if they also agree that context matters a lot. I 100% agree context matters. I think in some ways, good code is written by people who understand the business direction and product use case. I'll say I'm not always as strong at writing the best code, but I think I'm strong at understanding business and product requirements. So making abstractions that don't make assumptions that aren't known or, or that you don't know. Like we never know the future. So I think trying not to assume you do and how you write your code. And to Alex's point, code is read far more often than it is written or changed. So I think optimizing for reads is really important. And I think this point context matters because performance really only matters if it's something where the performance is something that's going to impact your usability. So understanding those trade-offs is always important in how you think about it. I would also firmly agree. I think my go-to statement here is that code should be intelligible, which encompasses several things. I think three primary ones. Obviously, it should be intelligible with computers. Work, ideally, it should be verifiable or testable automatically or manually. And it should be intelligible for a human reader to consume that specific PR or that specific Jupyter notebook or whatnot. You should be able to get into that code and it should justify its own existence to you. Maybe that means good naming conventions. Maybe that means comments. Maybe that means solid git blame or attribution back to whatever, whatever set of feature requirements brought about its existence. And I think most importantly, and something people overlook a lot, especially when they're starting a role for the first time at a, at a new company, whether they're a junior engineer or senior engineer, is that it should be culturally intelligible. If the norms at a company are, we are a scrappy four-person startup, we are MVPing everything, stubbed out branches of conditionals are the norm here, you should do that. You should not write 100% branch coverage on the fifth PR at a company because that's going to confuse probably the founder or one of the other three, the initial engineers when they come back and read through it. Similarly, if you are used to that environment, if you're, a, as I was when I rolled up here, sort of an old school Perl hacker, and you are making modifications in part of a code base that is really rigorous, like it's a rules engine, a billing engine, a taxation engine or something, don't bring your cultural norms from different contexts to that. Write code as it is written at that company. And that isn't always written in a way you agree with, but you should change those things as part of an announced effort to change the cultural norms around a company writing code. You shouldn't sort of change those things in a PR that introduced a brand new application framework uses dependency injection for the first time, performs crazy, spooky, aspect-oriented programming stuff, and just generally introduces unfamiliar new patterns as a way of trying to motivate change or show off or whatever it is. Be culturally intelligible. I 100% agree with that. I think consistency is much more important than any one decision because when someone starts, they're going to see all these different patterns and not know which one to follow. And it means when you're reviewing their code, you could be like, we don't do it that way, but they can point to 
well, I saw it here that way. And it's just much more confusing. So I think good code also optimizes productivity of future engineers and frankly, more junior engineers so that they can just pattern match and and copy the paradigms you already have. Because most things in coding are just variations of existing patterns that already exist. I wanted to ask a follow-up question on that. I think we're talking a lot about culture and making sure that you adhere to cultural norms at a company, but maybe is there a place for personal style and code at a large company? Like I love playing around with Python internals or implementing very expressive classes. I think that there are people that really prefer a functional style or may go about things in very different ways. Should there be a sort of homogenous code culture or should there be areas of code that don't look similar? Because it's way more fun to write some fun code, I think. I'm curious what Zach thinks about this, actually. (laughs) I don't actually think you can avoid that. I think however much programmers might want to sort of issue the the artist mentality and however uniform Go format or Pickle Auto Formatter might write your code, I think everybody's bringing a human creative paradigm to the table. Programmers in every capacity are creatives first and foremost. So I think trying to divorce your code from personal style is less important than trying to make sure your personal style is compatible with the norms of the area we're developing. If you're trying out functional programming for the first time in a code base that normally avoids that, that's fine. You should get buy-in for that change, where buy-in may mean I'm going to justify this with a comment, or where buy-in may mean I'm going to go to my boss and say, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to rewrite this, this module in Haskell or whatever. I want to be fairly clear that none of these comments are saying you must not rock the boat. You must always sort of robotically imitate what came before. I think there is absolutely an imperative for programmers to change and improve the practices that bring about the code bases they work on rather than just refactoring chunks of code as they find them. Simultaneously, I think there's a common misconception among programmers that maybe aren't willing to admit to themselves that they're showing off a little bit that they think if you build it, they will come. Namely, if you, if you write this perfectly factored, brand new sort of just representative line of a functional or AOP style or whatever, and it's the first thing like that in the code base, but it's just beautiful that people will start emulating that. That's not how cultural change happens. Cultural change happens if you teach those skills. Cultural change happens if you maybe make your change first and then take people through it and explain why your approach is better. And I think you absolutely should be trying to innovate stylistically and innovate procedurally as well as innovating and knocking out the feature you're working on. I just think doing that in a bubbly way is often the result of a little bit more showing off than people are willing to admit even to themselves. I think there's a lot in this discussion that we're going to probably touch on in a few minutes. For now, though, I'd like to stick with this idea. We have a definition of good code that seems to apply in a collaborative environment, the sort of environment that a lot of code gets made at Enclavio, where a lot of software gets produced and developed at Enclavio and many other companies, where you have a lot of people working on it. It's a large application. You might even have entirely different teams who don't interact on a day-to-day basis, who then have to know what the same feature does. I stated this as an assumption at the beginning of the episode, rather than giving a full justification, but I would like to take a minute to convince any doubters that are still out there in the audience. Why is it important to write good code in the first place? What benefits does that actually give you? I think the ability to move faster, because when you have fragile code or convoluted code, it means it takes much longer for new people to come up to speed 
or when you have a change or feature enhancement that you want to make, it makes it much harder to make it if you don't have good test coverage on your code, if your code is fragile, not written in a way that's easy to refactor. So I think the payoff for any individual company is, well, they can save money because they don't have to have engineer resources who are trying to maintain complex code. And they can also hire people who are more junior because the code is easier to work with. It's less risky. They don't have to understand every single possible scenario that they're playing with. I think returning back to that theme of intelligibility, it is, in addition to being bad for productivity, as Maritza calls out, it's also just plain old rude to present someone with the need to context switch or understand something they couldn't possibly have sort of arrived at on their own if they weren't inside your head as they're maintaining or reading through or debugging or whatnot, what some software creation of yours. I would, and I'd really consider it back from starting out in construction when I was a very young, young kid, the, the boss would very roughly say, make it easy on the next guy as the first and foremost sort of precept of this job site. And I think I would urge people to consider software creations the same way. You don't have to make a perfect work of art. It doesn't have to be bug-free, but it should absolutely be an act of polite and intelligible communication for the next person that's going to interpret what you create. And if you aren't doing those things, like we all cut corners sometimes and we all have to sometimes, but if you aren't doing those things, be accountable to that. Be accountable to that in your comments. Be accountable to that when people come to you for help or come to you with bug reports. Be accountable for the intelligibility of your creation. And that's not an extremist point of view. Intelligibility is never going to be 100%. I can't give the code I write to one of my siblings who's not a programmer and, and have them interpret it. But I can justify the level of confusion it causes. And sometimes that is, I'm sorry. And sometimes that is, it must be this way. What would you consider the fundamentals of writing good code, especially in this collaborative environment? We've talked a little bit about why it's important. And we brought up a few points on this. We talked about it's impossible to avoid personal style, but you need to make sure that it matches to the environment that you're working in. But are there any other fundamentals that you think are very important to writing good code in an environment like this? This is a little tangential, but since we talked about being in a collaborative environment, I think if the only way to write the code for the business case or problem you're solving is going to be very convoluted, usually a convoluted product experience lends to convoluted code. I feel like it behooves you to work with the people who are designing the spec to kind of simplify. Because I think if you can't explain it to your customers, like, well, in this case, we're doing this, but oh, wait, if it's this case, you're doing this. And like, you can't help them understand why they ended up in one state. It's probably bad code. So I think since we're focusing on collaborative environment, I think starting with first principles and, and saying, what is the problem we're solving? And how could I explain this solution to our customers? Can I do that without it being too complicated? Reminds me of a quote. Writing is nature's way of showing you how sloppy your thinking is. It's like programming is nature's way of showing you how convoluted your product is. And to double down on what Maritza called out and really reemphasize that the programming process is a two-way street between you and whoever gave you your requirements. I think it's especially when you're a junior engineer or especially when you're a newer engineer at a company, really tempting to sort of work in a vacuum and assume that everything that's coming to you that you need to work on is correct. And I think that does yourself and your requirements authors, your product folks, et cetera, a massive disservice. And that's not to say you should argue with every decision, but that if you always execute in a vacuum, you're really going to miss understanding how people use your product and the people in communication with your customers are going to miss 
constraints of the code you've written until it's sort of too late to effectively communicate those or, or blunt the sharp edges of them to your customers. Yeah, I can definitely confirm. Having worked directly with Maritza on features, being one of the people that that back and forth was between, I remember getting a lot of useful stuff from Maritza asking questions exactly like this. So just some confirmation from the perspective of someone who doesn't write nearly as much code as the three of you, it is extremely helpful, even if you're not necessarily down in the code base every single day. Three sort of very specific suggestions about how to go about creating good code. And some of these are sort of the coldest take of the century here, but time and time again, when I talk to people at meetups or I talk to people who have just gotten into the field, et cetera, these are things that are surprising to me in their absence, are you should use source control. There are going to be two groups of reactions to this, which is why are you spending airtime calling this out? And to those people, I would say, mind the other group, which is people who are wondering, why should I? Even if you're working in notebooks, even if you're working proofs of concept, et cetera, having a structured undo buffer is invaluable, even for the only developer on a project. You're also likely not the only developer on a project. You're the only person checking in code to the project, but your users or your product people or your auditors or your security people that want to go figure out how a vulnerability got into the code base, they're participants in that project as well as so use source control. Two is write tests. That doesn't necessarily mean automated tests. Back to your three-person scrappy little startup. Sometimes tests mean there is a structured, ordered way that you told someone to go through the test plan of this code. Sometimes tests is we, we have to do it live, but you should still document that. You should have a paper trail of how this code's going to get exercised, ideally automatedly, sure. And I think it behooves all code bases of every level of maturity to have a couple of small, simple unit tests, even if they're testing the hello world case, just because it allows someone when they do end up with time to write more thorough tests to already sort of have the framework down and have a blank buffer where they can just add tests that will already run. You don't have to have good test coverage, but you should have a testing process so that when you are waiting for that compiler, that progress bar, or that interminable company meeting to finish, you do have somewhere you can go and make the world a little bit of a better place. And the third thing is you should have some sort of automated leader. It doesn't have to be a good one. It can be an automated linter that automatically adds a blank line unconditionally to the end of every single file. I don't know why you'd have that, but you could. That gives you a place just like tests, where if you did want to, in the future, add static analysis tools, add tools that enforce some standard of rigor or correctness on the code base, you have that list that you can simply append new checks and new formatters and new verifiers to. And I think it behooves people to do that really early on in a project's lifecycle. I think things like cookie cutter are great for this. If you don't know that one, check it out on GitHub. I think things like Jupyter Notebooks, while they're invaluable for certain parts of the industry, are sort of actively hostile to those three practices of having source control tests and automated linters in that they very much want the artifact itself to be the lingua franca of code shared between developers. And I would really urge folks, even though there is a bit of an impedance mismatch, even if all you're doing in your day-to-day -day is working in a notebook, to get that checked in and to get some sort of programmatic operation run on it even if it's a really silly one up front. And I think you'll thank me in, in a few days, weeks, or months, or whenever, when you have a little bit of time to add more verification to those, those frameworking steps you've added. On the topic of notebooks, there have been some advances recently. I think that there are now reliable ways to do diffs within notebooks and reliable ways to lend particular cells. But for a long time, that was a major reason that I always distilled all of my notebook work into Python scripts that produce their own artifacts externally so that I could really utilize good lenders, good source control, exactly as I was saying, write tests for that code. I think it's easy to fall into all or nothing thinking when it comes to tests or when it comes to good commits in source control or when it comes to linters. And I'm, I'm really not saying that. 
you should have one of each. You should have a precedent for using source control, a precedent for a test or two, a precedent for even the simplest linter in the world. You don't have to get, but when you write your first test commit, it doesn't have to cover everything. It doesn't have to cover anything. It should simply make it easier for the next person to write those tests, the next person to, to add those linter configs, those linter rules. So we've dug into a few tips here. I'd like to take this particular angle on it real quick. Are there any of those tips that you think are more important or any other tips that haven't been brought up yet for specifically thinking about working on a project that involves multiple people? Are there ways that make it easier to collaborate on a software product, either that's tools, practices, processes, anything like that? Again, either things that we've brought up already or things that we have not brought up already? I would say certainly define a code review process, even if it's not a perfect code review process, it does give you places to build. So if your code review process is looking at the code and somebody runs the tests on their local machine, but now that you have a code review process, you can put a checklist there and the checklist can say, did you run the tests? And that's still not perfect. So in a year when you hire somebody to like work on your internal tooling, they can make it so that those tests run automatically. The other thing I would say is always specify things like how your code gets deployed. I think that's an important part that is often easy to skip and maybe like late in software projects that aren't libraries that are uploaded to some central repository. Maybe somebody goes on a server and checks out the code and that's the step. Where does the code need to get deployed? What order do the like deploy steps need to be run in? I think those are essential steps to writing good code that are not exactly what we think of as code. Like if you have database migrations, for example, and server changes, what order do those things need to be executed in? I second that because I think by having it documented, at least your processes, it means when someone does have time to automate them, they already have kind of a run book that they're going to check against. So I second that. I think this is all like sort of good code posture, if you will, not posturing like posing as if you were writing good code but ensuring that anything that you do can enforce that posture. So you kind of by default are writing code that is splinted in some way. You are by default writing code that is tested in some way. Even if the test is not relevant, the test is there. You can enhance it as part of your code. You can do a code reprocess and improve it. You like are starting with a core, a foundation of, of good code posture. I, I think there's a lot more discussion to be had about how to do code review well um, as an organization. Before we go there, I wanted to call out one other thing that I think is really crucial for writing good code, which is more of a cultural or organizational process than it is a technique. And it is to really strongly build a culture of if you see something, fix something. The refrain I, I like to fall back to here is think about your 20% time, your 30% time, and your 50% time. 20% time is this thing that's popularized by Google, apocryphally now, perhaps they don't do it everywhere. I'm not, I'm not sure how widely it's practiced in Google, but it's the idea that you can work on semi-personal projects on company time in order to, to innovate in ways that the, the company specifically asks you to. That's great. I think there should, in addition to that, be a chunk of time. I call it 30% time because it's two then three, but it doesn't have to be a specific percentage, which is you take this time to improve things you noticed in need of improvement while working on something unrelated. Maybe this is cleaning up comments, maybe this is adding tests, maybe this is doing some light refactoring, et cetera. But it's all that stuff that you notice when you're in a piece of code and you think, wouldn't it be great if, and it's pretty topical to what you're working on, but you don't have time to do it right then. I think it's critical to have a company culture that enables people to spend that time. 
that doesn't necessarily mean you scope creep every diff, every feature, every release to include that stuff. But it does mean that you should have a structure for allocating and defending after you spend that 50% of time building the thing you must build. And maybe instead of spending that, or instead of, or in addition to spending that 20% of time building the thing that you thought of and nobody else did, you spend that 30% of time improving the engineering artifacts of your company. So the next person who needs to build something like you just spent that 50% on has an easier time. This is very similar to following the campsite rule, leave it in better shape than you found. And you can sometimes include that in the diff that you are making for a given feature add. You can do a little bit of light refactoring as part of that. And I think I would stop short of having a hard requirement that you like touch a file a little bit outside of your lane as part of those diffs. But I would strongly encourage new developers to do it. And I hear a lot of folks from a lot of different corporate experiences experiencing a ton of pushback when they touch files sort of outside of their team's immediate narrow domain as part of the diff, or they, they require code review from people that are outside of their immediate sort of subunit of the organization. And I think, frankly, that's cancer. I think you absolutely must have a culture that welcomes people making improvements from outside of your org, even if those improvements lack context and you have to correct them or tell people why they, they are misguided. And I think if getting small, obvious improvements or diffs outside of your area approved is a hassle, that's a huge organizational red flag. You should work on that with your boss. You should work on that with other teams. They should have time allocated for external unexpected code reviews. You should work on that with potentially some strong personalities in your org that are very defensive of people touching what they see as their code. And I think procedurally, it's really important to have, in addition to the unstructured time and the sprint work or the feature work, that 30% buffer of, I want to improve what I just touched for my feature work so that this can be more intelligible, more maintainable, higher quality for the next folks. I guess on that note, you just brought up code review. Let's go ahead and have that discussion about code review. I think having your code reviewed is something that many people earlier in their careers, especially on the data science side, may have extremely limited experience with. So let's start with the basics. What exactly is code review and why is it helpful, both, I guess, at an organizational level and at a personal level? Well, I think it's a a place where you have someone give you feedback so we can all learn from each other. I think it's a second point of catching issues. So it's no one single point of failure. So if someone missed a requirement or misunderstood what they were building, it's a chance to catch that. But it's also a way to hold us to be consistent because if multiple people are looking at code, they might catch the inconsistencies or say, oh, I would have done it this way. So I think it's just a way for the whole team to become better. But most importantly, it's another kind of checkpoint. Thinking specifically of people who don't have much experience having their code reviewed, what advice do you have to someone going into their first code review? Hmm. So if I had never had my code reviewed, I'm sure I would be maybe surprised that people were commenting on it. I would feel like they were attacking my personal style, making suggestions that I didn't agree with, probably wasting my time. But I think having worked professionally at organizations that do code review for a long time, I see a lot of that as opportunities for dialogue. So if they're telling me something doesn't make sense, it maybe doesn't make sense. It maybe makes sense and I need to make it make more sense to them. It's an indication that maybe, as Marisa mentioned at the beginning, maybe my variables are named incorrectly or not very clearly named, or maybe the documentation that surrounds this code is not sufficient. I think it's also an important step in like aggressively learning. When you do code review, you should treat that as kind of almost like part of your compensation that 
you're getting free tutoring on code. Like, show me what's wrong with this. Make me a better coder. Make it so that in in a year I'll be ready to be the next level of coder. Yeah, that's absolutely huge. I think we've talked about having mentors on this podcast before and how huge that can be. And having that at a code level just built into the process sounds pretty nice to me. I think especially if you're getting reviews for the first time, the first time at the company or the first time in your career or review for the first time from someone who's organizationally distant from you. To go potentially a little off script, I think you should always be empowered, no matter how junior you are or what the comment is on, to talk to that person about how they're communicating. I think there's a tremendous amount of debt in our industry, every programmer, of giving pretty impolitely phrased and uncompassionate code reviews. Do not take that to mean that I'm in the camp of you should have one positive comment for every critical comment. That's, that's absolutely not what I'm saying. But I also think there's a tendency, especially when you're engaging with an engineer for the first time through a code review, if the way I engaged with you for the first time in a conversation was a bulleted list of 30 different things you've done wrong, that would be kind of a problem. I think code reviews should similarly be phrased as acts of human conversation. That doesn't mean that all 30 things don't belong in that list, but perhaps they should be bracketed with things for your contribution. Here's the order in which I read it. Here's what I liked. Here's what I didn't like. Now let's get into the bullets. And I think when you are getting that review, if you find yourself feeling that way, be with those feelings, acknowledge that they're real, like try to pull apart pride and, and I like my variable names, damn it, don't, don't touch my code from oh, this was a pretty brusque and abrupt way to communicate this stuff. And I would always, always, always feel empowered to talk directly through your manager at the lunchroom, over beers after work, you name it, with that person. And I think a lot of people who give code reviews like that don't realize that's how they come across. I'm guilty of this multiple times a week. I'm positive. And that feedback is really important to sort of normalize in the industry of give the review you would give with slightly more humane communication. Baby steps. Yeah, to build on that point, I think one of the real things that an expert coder at a company and a, a senior member of a team should be contributing in, in code review is building the confidence of the people that they are working with. If you disagree with something, you can note how you would have done it differently. If it's a like blocking decision, you can comment that you really think that this will fail in a dramatic way and help them learn how to work through their code. But at the end of the day, you don't want to have to write the code in the code review. You want them to come to you with excellent code that they're proud of. And then you just read through it, make any notes, looks good to me, and it goes out. That's huge. That's huge. So I guess speaking to the people who might be on the flip side of that coin, what advice do you have for someone who's, I guess, new to reviewing code and wants to make sure that they do it correctly? Obviously, we had the comment of, be human, consider the tone that you're taking when you comment on someone's code. Any other tips there? Yeah, I think it's a good idea always to step through the code mentally. I think at different companies, there's different code review cultures. And at some companies, you will be required to run the code, run the tests. So it's important to adhere to whatever your company expectations and company culture for code review is. But I would always step through the code and make sure that you understand its execution in your head at least. Get any questions out like, what does this do? Would this work instead? I think this is like your chance to influence the code that goes out. If you wait until after it's gone out to ask those questions, maybe a bug has slipped by, or maybe the next time that somebody touches the code, you'll have to make more changes to it. So it's 
it is your opportunity to get things done and sort of finalized. Yeah, I think understanding, being able to phrase your comments to as ones that help make the code easier to work with for other people or make it easier to read versus, yeah, personal preference, leaving that out of it, or at least calling out when it is personal preference. Like, I've done this everywhere. So to keep it consistent, like to see this, but willing to chat about it. So things that are like, this must change versus personal preference type things. If there's any fresh in your mind, can you talk about some examples of stuff that might fall into one or the other of those categories? I think, well, one example is I know in Python, you can do like conditional checks. Like a lot of things are truthy or falsy versus explicitly checking if something's none. I feel like you could argue that's a case for personal preference, but sometimes bugs happen when types are not what you expect them to be. So I think you can justify that by saying, look, we got this bug last week because something came in as none when we thought it was a Boolean type. I think that can kind of justify it. So some things that sometimes seem personal preference can be backed by like, listen, here's a good learning opportunity, why I feel this way or why it might seem like it's personal preference, but that's actually backed by something. To further emphasize that the be human thing, I really need code reviewers, especially senior ones, and especially reviewers that are reviewing the contribution for someone they haven't reviewed before to resist the temptation to haze. If you are rigorous, be rigorous all the time. Be very honest with yourself about the density and specificity of comments you're leaving. And if that is not consistent, across contributors, something is wrong. Now, you may not be being a jerk. That's something that is wrong. Maybe you or someone else needs to go take a time with a brand new hire and sort of backfill some of their basics so that this the same comment about a particular issue isn't all over that person's PRs. But you should not be tailoring your comment density based upon how unfamiliar someone is or how pissed off you are at them about a meeting where your two departments were in a spat or whatever. I used to work with John Syracuse of Hypercritical Fame and the Mac Reviews on Ars Technica. And that guy gave incredibly rigorous, incredibly specific code reviews. But he did not waver whether he was reviewing someone he had worked with for decades or he was reviewing an intern who did not know the syntax of the language they were working on. The rigor was always present. And that really, really came through in that people would feel a little overwhelmed when they got the first one from him. But it meant a lot that they could go see that exact same rigor being applied elsewhere. They could see he wasn't hazing them because they were new. And I think that's really critical to bring. I think you should gather yourself beforehand before you give a code review. You should think about community norms regarding when it's appropriate to block a contribution when it's not, uh, when it's appropriate to leave to-dos in the code when it's not. Those are going to differ on an organization-by-organization basis. I would have a slightly warmer take, which is that I think that the argument that nits don't belong on code review, that stylistic stuff should always be handled by a linter, it shouldn't be called on a code review, I think that's utopian. I think that may occasionally be realizable in very specific code bases between very specific sets of contributors in very specific situations. And the rest of the time, you should be mentioning what you want to see stylistically. But I think as both of the others in this panel have said, you should be qualifying your comments. Is this a nit? Is this something that's blocking? Is this something I think is missing that could be improved in a fast follow, but doesn't need to go out and feed one of this? Is this a call for a gradual or someday, or it would be nice if refactor? Similarly, a critical thing to have happen when you're reading someone else's code review or when you're giving it is have the issue tracker open in the adjacent tab, whether that's your GitHub or your JIRA or your text document, your to-do list or Kanban or whatever, as you see things in the code review that you think are out of scope for that specific set of changes, but they're things that you wish were true, whether they're within the power of the code's author or not to change, 
get those tracked. There's no time like a code review to write down, I wish our linter fixed our tabs to spaces, or I wish it required every public function to have a comment, or I wish this one piece of code that is just rife with null checks took optionals or something like that. Get those things in the issue tracker while they're fresh in your mind, and they're never fresher than when you're reading the code in a code review. So so I, again, I, I'm, I don't want to draw any hard and fast rule here about like you should be writing the same number of lines in the issue tracker during a code review as you are in PR comments, but consider emitting review related information to both places. I'd like to spend the next couple minutes talking about misconceptions and learning. In particular, all of you have trained less experienced engineers during your time at Clavio and elsewhere. Are there misconceptions that you commonly see when people are just starting out or any specific pieces of advice you often find yourself having to give? A couple things that this is pretty hard to generalize in that this is going to vary pretty heavily between groups. A couple things that I repeatedly bring up with regards to code quality or code review are don't kick docs or tests down the road. If you are making a separate issue tracker entity or allocating separate sprint time for tests or documentation or whatnot, and that's not in a remedial capacity, you're not like paying down missing test debt or paying down missing doc debt. I think if you are allocating that continually, you're making a mistake. Those should be rolled into the definition of done of your software product. That doesn't mean you have to write every feature with the amount of tests and documentation that would be fit like your flagship public API, but you should be doing that as part of the work. You should be including the time it takes to do those things in the time it takes to do the rest of the work rather than saying, I'll get to it later because we all know what happens to that. Yeah, I think that's especially true if you work in a fast-paced environment. The natural tendency is okay, well, we got that finished. We can move on now and you move on to something else and you move quickly and then things break. So I definitely agree with you on that front. Yeah, to call it a related area, I think that a lot of people don't have a ton of experience writing tests. And when they go to write tests, they don't know where to create the data. They don't know if the data is valid that they've created. And with particular tools like mocks, there's a lot of, like I think, difficult to formulate judgment about what is an appropriate mock. You'll find people that have real strong stylistic preferences for tests that don't touch the database at all. I tend to find that those are too abstract for my taste and that you end up having to mock out all these internal aspects of your data access layer. So maybe you're using Django and suddenly you're mocking the filter method to return an object to avoid a database hit. And then you're mocking your caching layers who avoided a cache hit there. I try to make my tests very straightforward, even more so maybe than like your production code. If you have many layers to your tests, it can be very difficult to tell what is being tested, whether the test is actually confirming any behavior, whether your mocks are at an appropriate level or not, things like that. How about yourself? Learning to do anything is, uh, it's rarely linear. There are oftentimes twists and turns. In the case of learning to code, potentially you could realize that you had something wrong or not fully correct, and you have to go back and correct that idea before you move forward again. On your journey to become a better software engineer, what were some of the misconceptions that you had or some of the hardest lessons that you ended up learning or difficult concepts that you ended up grasping eventually? I think maybe that upfront work goes a long way. Early on, I think I was always tempted to just start coding and like, I'll figure out the details later. But oftentimes those details are the ones that come to bite you in your system architecture or like, oh, this weird thing that seemed like an edge case, but 
like, oh gosh, I didn't think about this and how I engineered my data access model. So I think a little work to make sure everyone's on the same page about requirements and that you come up with a plan from the start that isn't just like, we'll figure it out as we go. So that I've always carved out a little bit of extra time to work on my own fundamentals as I work on a new project. And if you worked with me in 2011 to 2013, I'm sorry. <laughs> sometimes I wrote very abstract functional code. Sometimes I was very focused on squeezing every millisecond out of three lines of code, doing the exact minimal amount of memory allocation. Maybe I went through a behavioral test phase. I think that in code review, people usually set me straight. And if they didn't understand it there, that was like a lesson for me that I had gone too far in one direction, or maybe just not educated people on the pattern that I was using. I've always been really interested in exploring the different facets of languages, whether like interesting scope attributes of Ruby, core libraries and Python, things like that. And sometimes linking to the documentation and putting a blurb in my pull request is all that's necessary to convince people that something is a good idea. I think my biggest one, especially when coming into a company for the first time, is that your first two guesses about how easy or effective a wide-reaching change would be always wrong. In that, when you find some large fundamental substrate thing that you'd like to change, refactor, or improve upon, first one you find, you usually underestimate the effort required to change it, to fix it. So if you, if you do make an attempt there, it's more or less doomed. It's either doomed to, to be partial forever or never get off the ground. The second one, you ascertain the effort correctly, but you don't ascertain the constraints of the existing system appropriately. The ugly, hideous, weird, janky thing is ugly, hideous, and weird, and janky because a lot of very smart people have found that that is sort of the local maximum for what you need to do. And it's only after you get out from under those sort of inevitable first encounters with hubris in a role, and they're going to happen every time you change roles, no matter how many decades you've been doing this, that you end up being able to really effectively make those big, deep, wide-reaching changes that raise all boats, as it were. Another sort of rough learning is that sometimes stupider is better. I don't mean simpler, I mean, I mean actually stupider, in that there are lots of cases where we could write very sophisticated systems that are the most appropriate to solve a problem, and the maintainers are just never going to understand them. It's not because the maintainers are idiot. That's because in most cases, the maintainers are never going to be in a role where they're enabled to have the time and resources needed to understand crazy, deep, elegant code. I don't want to sound like a paraphrasing Rob Pike about Go here because I, I don't actually agree that that was an instance of this. Google that one if you're unclear what I'm referring to. But I do think you need to be brutally honest with yourself when you're making something intricate and advanced about whether over the long term, people who are not your code reviewer right now, who are not the person who sits next to you that you're teaching how it works over the long term, everyone who's staffed to maintain, understand, extend, monitor that is going to be resourced to understand it. And often they won't be, in which case you, you should make the thing that is not quite as good that people can use. I wanted to respond to one of your first points, which was a hubris of joining a new code base and trying to make a massive change. All of you have worked with me as I joined Clavio, And definitely the first thing that I did was try to re-implement a sharding layer at our database that I thought was not elegant. And it definitely could be hubris. I also consider it to be like a mode of communication. I say, why is this done? And I could ask you for an explanation, or I could come up with what I think is maybe an alternate 
implementation. And that's where I like really dig into the details. Oh, we would have to make all of these changes to make this work, or the sharding is done with data that you don't have access to at this point. To my like earlier point, I think that writing down the code really shows you what you're missing. So I, I consider that to be almost a mode of communication, even if it's in the form of a pull request. And to double down those first two rough lessons you have when you're making your first couple big changes, you can't avoid those. Even if you know they're coming, you will still experience them and you should and must spend that time. That's important to communicate outward to the rest of the org that you're interested in making big changes. And that's important to prepare yourself to make them. There's no shortcut about that. In a way, it's similar to doing the initial exploratory analysis for a data science project where you're really just trying to get a feel of the ground truth in the area you're working in. But the ground truth here happens to be the code base rather than a particular data set that you're trying to run a particular analysis on. Definitely, yeah. You get to the point in your project where you're like, I think this is the best thing. And then somebody says, but your residuals are completely uneven. (laughs) Hate it when that happens. (laughs) I'd like to end this episode with a few concrete tips. Y'all have already given a lot of advice, honestly, a fair amount of concrete advice already, and a lot of wisdom as well. But let's go ahead and consider this one more opportunity to give our audience something specific and tangible to take home and immediately start working on so that they can improve their coding skills. Let's go ahead and break this up by levels of experience. What would be your top tip for someone who is just starting their journey in writing good code? My top tip is get feedback and always organize that feedback. If you're getting feedback, it's probably consistent feedback. Put in a checklist make a checklist that includes other things that you want to do. Like maybe your code review process doesn't currently include a linter, but you can run the linter yourself and isolate any errors within your like change code. Just start to build the like process for improving your code writing engine. I think if you're just getting started out and you're interviewing, oftentimes technical interviews will have you write code snippets or share code snippets. I think using that as an opportunity to get free code review and free feedback about how you did is also an awesome opportunity. And I know I did that early on and it helped me land my first job. So read code, ask questions. That giant, intimidating monolith you just onboarded onto day three that you have a feature you don't understand and don't know where to start looking. Start by reading. When you hit something you don't know, find someone to help you understand it. Do that for a few days. You don't have to fit the entire thing in your head, but there's absolutely no substitute for reading code. This applies to the tools you use as well. Deep is often not that deep. If you want to make changes to a web framework you use or utility library or programming language itself, it takes a surprisingly low amount of reading and comprehension to be able to operate at that level. So never be intimidated. Always get your IDE's go-to definition working. Go to the definition and read the code. Let's move one level up. How about for someone who is an intermediate coder? They aren't just starting out, but they're definitely not at the level of like a a true expert at the moment. So there might be conflicting definitions of what an intermediate developer is, but I would say my advice for an intermediate developer would be as a junior dev, you're really trying to make sure that your code is correct. And as an intermediate dev to push yourself farther, make bold changes, play code golf, remove a variable, try a completely different style push the envelope so that you get more feedback. That's not just like, okay, this is straightforward code. This is good. Done. Try to figure out what patterns people really like using. And then let's move one level up. So 
how about for an expert coder, but maybe one who has not worked in the exact area that you're specializing in and is reviewing code in an area that you are a specialist in? Be humble. Try your best to not unpack the backpack of baggage that you bring from previous roles or other areas of expertise. Exercise positive regard for the contributor, no matter how junior they are or how obviously flawed some part of their contribution might be. Meet them where they're at. Your job foremost is to help a programmer improve when you are reviewing their contribution. And your second criteria is to make sure something broken doesn't go out. But if you prevent the broken thing from going out and you leave a broken person behind because you left a rude code review or did not communicate effectively or did not set them up to not need your feedback as much the next time you have failed in your senior role. Yeah, I totally agree about meeting someone where they're at. And I think to that end, being humble is like ask a question if you don't understand something versus assuming you understand it and like disagree with it. Maybe there's a very good reason they went that way or they couldn't get it working the way they thought. But I think, yeah, start with asking questions versus criticizing. All right. Awesome advice all around. Thank you all. And that is all the time that we have for this episode this month. Thank you so much again to Zach, Alex, and Maritza for being on. This was a pleasure. I learned a lot during this. I hope everyone listening did as well. Thank you. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. This episode, as all episodes of the Clavio Data Science Podcast are, was sponsored by Clavio. You can learn more about Clavio, where we empower creators to own their own destiny at clavio.com. That's K-L-A-V-I-Y-O.com. If you liked what you heard on this podcast, go ahead and consider subscribing. You can subscribe to the Clavio Data Science Podcast at just about every major podcast distribution network. In addition, consider leaving us a review or a rating. And especially with episodes like this, where we're trying to impart specific skills, if you know someone who you think might get something out of this episode, share it with them. I think we gave you a clear sense of why writing good code is a good thing. And in the interest of helping people do that, feel free to share this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns about anything you heard on the Clavio Data Science Podcast this month, the best person to contact is me. The best place to reach me is my Twitter account. That Twitter at is Lawson underscore M underscore T. That's L-A-W-S-O-N underscore M underscore T. Thank you for tuning in. Have a great month.